Thank you, guys. Hey, let's take a Bible and open it this morning to First uh, Chronicles chapter 21. You know, uh, I, I, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you here, here's my question, how many of you guys here have sent in your census form? Well, let me just say, if this is a typical American audience, 35% of us have not. As a matter of fact, the Census Bureau is having a really tough time getting people to send these things back in. You say, why? Well, some people resent them because they're too long and they just don't want to be bothered. And then there are other people who say they're just too intrusive, that they ask questions like their race, their phone number, even the number of bedrooms in their house. What business is that of the government? And then there are some people, surveys are telling us, that frankly just don't trust the government no matter what they want to know and they're not going to tell them anything. And so this past weekend, the Census Bureau just finished hiring, you ready for this, 500,000 employees, get this now, to go house to house and apartment to apartment in America, chasing down everybody who has not filled out their census form. This is true. Now, today, what we want to look at is another census, one taken 3,000 years ago in the Bible. And you think the problems we have today with our census is bad? Wait till you see this. This makes our problems look tame. It was a census David took, and we're going to talk about it today because there's some great lessons here for those of us who live in the 21st century as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, just a little bit of background before we dig in. Remember, David now is at the end of his life. He's been king of Israel for over 30 years. He has made Israel into the dominant empire in the ancient Near East. And things are calm. There's no war. There's prosperity. There's tranquility. There's security. And it's at this time that David makes one of the worst mistakes he's ever made. So let's look at it and see. Verse 1. Chapter 21, verse 1. And Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to do something wrong. But just notice, Satan incited David to do something wrong. And what was it? What was the big mistake that David did? Verse 1 continues, he incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab, his commanding general, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba in the south to Dan in the north and then report back to me so I may know how many there are. Now, we know from the cognate passage in 2 Samuel 24 that David wasn't just taking a census of the general populace. He was taking a census of his troops, his army, his militia, how many soldiers he had. That was the real purpose of this. He wanted to know how big my army is. And so you say, well, Lon, I'm not really sure I see the problem here. What is exactly wrong with taking a census of your army? I don't understand the big deal. Well, the answer is that in and of itself, nothing was wrong with a census. I mean, as a matter of fact, if you go back and look in Numbers chapter 1, you'll find that when the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai, the first thing God told Moses to do was take a census. And so in light of that, we're forced to conclude that the problem here is not the census that David took, but the reason behind the census that he took, the motive that drove him to want to take this census. Now, friends, David had had a strategy his whole life about military might. He had had a strategy his whole life about the size of his army at any given point versus the size of the power of God. It all began back when he went out to face Goliath as a teenager. Listen, First uh, Samuel 17. He said to Goliath, Goliath, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. You've got all kinds of military might. 
But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands so that all the earth may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear. It's not about military might. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you to me. And the rest is history. Then David wrote Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots. And some trust in horses, military might, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Those who trust in military might are brought to their knees and fall, but we who rely on the Lord, we rise up and stand firm. And again, finally, Psalm 33, David said, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes because of his great strength. I do not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. It is the Lord who delivers from death. He is our help and our shield. What is this strategy that David had followed his whole life? It was that his confidence was not in the size of his military. The con- his confidence was not in the human resources around him that he could see and feel and touch and count up. His confidence was in the unseen power of God. And David said, you know what, if I go into battle and my army's not as big as the other guy's army, or even if I'm not as big as the other guy, Goliath, I don't worry about it. I don't care. If God's on my side, he's going to give me the victory anyway. Now, this was David's strategy. Friends, in wanting to know how big his army was, in wanting here to take a census of his army, when everything's at peace, when there's no war anywhere, where there's no military reason at all for needing that information, what we see is that there was a cancer, a very subtle cancer, that was taking root and beginning to grow in David's heart. What we see is that David is beginning to find his security now, not in the unseen power of God as he had been for years, but now he's finding it in his tangible, earthly, human resources that he can see and total up and touch. And so what I'm saying to you is, what made this census a problem is that at the heart of this census lay idolatry. At the heart of this census lay the fact that David was beginning to walk by sight and not by faith. He was beginning to put his faith in the resources he could touch instead of in the resources of God. And what made this so serious is that as the spiritual leader of Israel, if he starts going in this direction, he's going to pull everybody else in the nation right with him. So do we understand what the problem is here? Okay, now let's look and see what happened. Verse 3. Joab replied and said, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord, the king, are they not all your soldiers, all not God's subjects? Why do you want to do this? Why do you want to bring guilt on Israel? Now, friends, Joab is not what we would call a spiritual giant, if you understand what I'm saying. And yet even Joab realized this was wrong. Even he figured out this was a terrible idea. And he goes to David and he says to David, David, look, you and I have been together for 30 years, king. You and I have gone into battles where we have been hopelessly outnumbered, where we didn't have a chance on the human level to win. And God has always taken our army and multiplied its impact a hundred times bigger than the number of troops we had. It doesn't matter how big the army is, David. The only thing that matters is whether God's with us. Don't do this. This is a bad idea. You're going to make God angry and you're going to bring his anger down on all of us. Don't do this. Verse 4. But the king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout all Israel and took the census the way 
David told him to, but you know, Joab was right. Verse 7, God was upset. Verse 7, this command was evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. And what follows is one of the most unusual events anywhere in the Bible. Verse 8, and David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. God, I understand now you're upset at me. And so I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. David says, God, I feel so bad. I can't believe I did this. I need you to forgive me. And God says, you know what, David? I forgive you. But what you've done has insulted me. It has insulted my power. It's disgraced me in front of all of Israel. And I'm sorry, I just can't let it go. There needs to be some response from me for what you've done. And so, David, I'm going to give you three choices as to the discipline I'm going to bring on the nation. You choose. Friends, as far as I know, this is the only place anywhere in the Bible where God allows the person who messed up to choose the discipline he's going to send on them. He gives David three choices. Look what happens here. Verse uh, 11. The Lord said to Gad, David's seer, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options, David. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says. You got three choices. You got door number one, door number two, and door number three, David. And I'm going to tell you what's behind each of the doors, okay? You got to choose. Behind door number one is three years of famine, verse 12. Now, Israel's been through three years of famine at certain times. In fact, when it went through a time like this in the days of Elijah, the Bible says people were reduced to drinking their own urine and eating their own children. So this is not a real pretty option here, door number one. Door number two, Gad says, is I will give you three months of being swept away before your enemies with their swords overtaking you. I'm going to let you run in the wilderness and be a fugitive and an outlaw for three months, David. Now, friends, David's been there, done that, got the T-shirt. You understand what I'm saying? He's been chased around by Saul for seven years. He's been chased out of the city by Absalom. He don't want to do this again. This is not a pretty option either. And then finally, door number three, God says, I'm going to give you three days of plague over the whole land with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Those are your three choices. Now decide how I should answer the Lord who sent me. Verse 13. So David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Well, yeah, I guess so. How'd you like to have these three choices? Not, not a nice situation to be in, but God said, you got to choose one of them. Now, before we see what David chose, let's stop for a minute and ask a question. What is the difference? Think now for a second. What is the difference between doors number one and three, okay, over here, and door number two over here? What's the difference between door one, the famine, door three, the plague, and David being chased around in the wilderness by his enemies? Well, what's the difference between the two? Over here, door one and door three, who suffers for what David did wrong? Other people, innocent people, right? In door number two, who suffers for what David did wrong? David, exactly. So which door do you think David should have chosen? Well, of course he should have chosen door number two and suffered himself for what he did wrong. You think he chose that door? Let's watch. Middle of verse uh, 13. I am in deep distress, David says to Gad, the prophet. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy. You let God choose. I'll let God choose, but do not let me fall into the hands 
of other men. Gad, he says, I'll take door number one or I'll take door number three. You let God choose. But the one door I won't take is door number two. I'm not going to be chased around. I'm an old man. I've done this before. I'm not being chased around in the wilderness for three months by my enemies. And so, verse 14, the Lord sent a plague, door number three, on all of Israel. And 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. Soldiers. God said to David, David, you want to count your army? Let me show you how fast I can reduce your army, son. I'll take it down 70,000 in three days. How about that? And God sent the angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was about to do so, the Lord saw it and was grieved. And he said to the angel, enough, stop. But friends, that didn't happen in a vacuum. Watch what it was also happening at the very same moment. David, it says in verse 16, look up and saw the angel. He fell on the ground face down in sackcloth. And he said, verse 17, said to God, was it not I, Lord, who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but innocent sheep. What have they done? Oh, Lord, my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family But do not let this plague remain on your people anymore. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that the minute David turned to accepting full and total responsibility for what he did and saying, God, it's not just that I feel badly, but now I'm really ready to have you lay all the consequences for what I've done squarely on me. Isn't it interesting that right at that point, plague stopped right then plague was over. You say, Lon, is that a coincidence? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. See, friends, it's one thing to feel bad about what we've done. David felt badly about what he had done at the beginning of this. But it's a totally different thing for us to step up to the plate and accept total and absolute responsibility for what we have done. And the moment David did that, the mercy of God was activated and the plague was over. Now, that's as far as we want to go in the passage today because we want to ask the most important question. And y'all in the lobby, you know what this is. So we want to hear you guys too, all right? You ready? One, two, three. So what? Right. You say, Lon, I feel bad for David. I feel bad for these people. You know, I'm not sending my senses for me no matter what you say. So what difference does this have to do with me? Well, I think there's a great lesson here for you and me that live in the 20th century as followers of Jesus Christ. Let's see if we can find out what it is. I want to play a little bit of what if. Now, I know what if is is risky, but let's play a little bit of what if, okay? What if David had started off here the way he finished? What if David had chosen door number two? What if David had started this whole thing off by accepting full and total responsibility for what he had done? What if that had happened? Well, first of all, I think that it's obvious there would have been no plague on Israel, right? But I'm also convinced that it's very likely that God in his mercy would not have made David spend the whole three months he talked about running away from his enemies out in the wilderness. I believe in his mercy, God would have softened that consequence on David. You say, well, now, Lon, how can you say that? I mean, what are you, a prophet or the son of a prophet? I mean, who gives you the right to say what God would have done? Well, folks, it's not about being a prophet. It's about knowing God and understanding the heart of God and the ways of God as explained to us in the Bible. See, God knows that even even as followers of Jesus Christ, no matter how hard you and I try, we're going to mess up. That's just, it's going to happen. 
And the Bible explains to us that when we do mess up, what delights the heart of God and what activates the richest mercy of God is when we're willing to confess our wrongdoing and tell God we feel badly about it. And, that's not all, and when we're willing to accept total and absolute responsibility for what we have done, that's when the mercy of God gets activated. For example, 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, marches to Jerusalem, tears down the city wall, burns down the temple, burns down the whole city, takes the entire population of the city captive as slaves, and takes them back to Babylon. Now, this is a bad thing when this happened in the ancient Near East. The chances after something like this happening of the city of Jerusalem ever being rebuilt, of those slaves being allowed to return at some point to their own land, well, the, it, it was so remote, it's a, it was a, that the odds were about the same as the Red Sox winning the World Series. You understand? I mean, and they ain't never going to win the World Series, and that's about how remote this was. But, a hundred years after that happened, there was a fellow named Ezra who came along. He was a priest. And in Babylon, he led these people, the people of Israel, to a position where they finally, after a hundred years, accepted the full responsibility for why they were slaves, for why the city had fallen. Look what happened here. Ezra chapter 9. It's a little bit long. Follow along. This is the prayer that Ezra prayed. Now, we're a hundred years after the city's fallen. Ezra 9. Then the people of Israel gathered around me, Ezra said, and I tore my cloak and I pulled the hair from my head and I fell on my knees and I prayed. Look what he prayed. Oh, my God, I am embarrassed and ashamed to lift up my face to you on account of our own sins. We have been subjected to captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings, even as it is today. So now, oh, God, what can we say? For we have disregarded your commands, and what has happened to us is the result of our own evil deeds. And actually, you, Lord, have punished us less than our wrongdoings deserve. O oh, Lord God, you are right in what you have done to us, and we stand before you without excuse. And as he was praying, the very large number of Israelites gathered around him. They, too, wept bitterly. Now, you talk about accepting total responsibility for what you've done. You're saying to God, God, we have no excuse. We deserve everything we got. In fact, we should have gotten worse. It took a hundred years, but they finally got there. You know what happens next? Within a few years, very short period of time, Nehemiah, a friend of Ezra's, goes to King Artaxerxes of Persia and said, I'd like to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. You know what happened? For no logical reason. There isn't one single reason why King Artaxerxes said okay. Not only did he say okay to Nehemiah, he sent a whole contingent of his army with him to help him. Not only did he send the army with him to help him, but he said, Nehemiah, guess what? I'll pay for it out of my own personal funds. So here the king of Persia pays to have the walls and the city of Jerusalem rebuilt just a couple of years after this prayer, you think that's a coincidence? I don't. It may have taken a hundred years for those Israelites to accept full and total responsibility. But as soon as they did, the mercy of God was activated and look what happened. Remember Luke 18, the tax collector that went to the temple and beat on his breast? You remember that? And he said, Lord, I can't even look up at you. It's all my fault. Everything I've done, just have mercy on me. 
Did he get mercy? Oh, yeah. And you remember Zacchaeus? Luke chapter 19, the chief tax collector down in Jericho, the wee little man. He, he had stolen and swindled money from all kinds of people. But when he was willing to accept total and full responsibility, when he told Jesus that day, Jesus, you know what? Everybody I've stolen money from, I'm going to go back and pay them back four times what I stole. Did he get mercy? Right at that point. And how about the prodigal son? Comes home to his father in Jesus' story and says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer even worthy to be called your son. I'll be perfectly happy if you just put me out in the field and make me like a hired field hand. Is that what his dad did to him? No. Coming back like that, accepting full responsibility for what he had done, his dad reached out in mercy and hugged him and kissed him and threw a party. Friends, in all of these examples, and many more in the Bible, the Bible is trying to tell us something about God. The Bible is trying to tell us that when you've messed up, when I've messed up, the fastest and easiest way to activate the mercy of God on our behalf is to take full and total responsibility for what we've done. And that's when the mercy of God, when we own our stuff, that's when the mercy of God turns on for us. Now, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, may I say that the way to get to heaven, the way to get eternal life, the way to get into a personal relationship with Christ is the very same thing. It's built on the very same principle. God doesn't want you to jump through hoops. God doesn't want you to do penance. God doesn't want you to perform any kind of community service. All God wants you to do is own your stuff. Take full and absolute responsibility for the mess you've made out of your life and bring it to the foot of the cross and say, Jesus... Can you help? Can you turn my life around? Can you forgive me for what I've done? I don't have excuses. I just got a mess. And that's when the mercy of God is activated and God grants us forgiveness of sin and eternal life in a relationship with Him. This is the way God does business with human beings. We accept total responsibility. God shows mercy. They say, Alon, I understand that. But could you do me a favor? Could you paint me a picture of what this looks like? I mean, if I wanted to accept total and absolute responsibility in my life, what would I do? Put some handles on it. Tell me what this looks like in real life. Love to do it. I got five quick principles to give you, and I will finish on time. So stick with me. All right. Now, folks, if you've messed up, if you're in a tough situation, what I want to say to you is if you want to take that tough situation and you want to turn it into a total disaster you just ignore the five things I'm about to tell you. Don't do them, and I promise you, you will take whatever you've done and turn it into a complete disaster. But you follow these things, and it'll bring the mercy of God to bear. Principle number one, here we go, is avoid the victim mentality. Oh, woe is me, woe is me, everybody's against me, it's all a great right-wing right conspiracy. Uh-uh, you don't want to go there. Don't want to go there? That is not in the right direction at all. See, people who are taking full responsibility for their actions, they don't focus on what other people did to them. That's not taking responsibility. What difference does it make what other people did to you? They focus, these people who are taking full responsibility, on what they did that got them in this mess. And when you're focusing on yourself and how you are the cause of your own problems, then you're not a victim and nobody can make you a victim and don't make a victim out of yourself. You did this. Accept the responsibility that you did it. Number two, save your explanations for later. 
You may have a perfectly legitimate reason why you acted like you did, why you thought you were doing right. Let me tell you, when you're trying to accept full responsibility before God or full responsibility before another person, it is the wrong time for your explanations. Nobody wants to hear your explanations. Nobody wants to know why you did it. All they want you to do is own your stuff and accept the blame. That's it. Save your explanations. Maybe they'll work later, but they don't work now. Not interested. Number three, don't spare yourself. Don't coddle yourself in the way you name and claim what you did. It wasn't an affair. It was adultery. It wasn't that you misspoke. You lied. It wasn't that traffic was bad. You overslept. And you got to be honest enough to say those kinds of things. It's a very subtle way of sidestepping full and total responsibility that Madison Avenue has given us by giving us euphemistic names for what we've done that somehow diminish the seriousness of it. It's much uglier to say an adultery than an affair. It's much uglier to say lying than misspeaking. It's much uglier to admit you overslept than blame it on traffic. But if that's the truth, then tell the truth. Because that's what people who are accepting total responsibility do. And this is the way it works with my kids in my house. You know, we name it and claim it until we're done. We can fix it once we've named it and claimed it. And when they try to name it, if they don't name it right, and by the way, my definition is the definition of what's right. If they don't name it by what's right, we go back and name it again. And we name it a third time. And we name it a fourth time till we get the name right. We're going to hang the right shingle on the right action. Then we can fix it, right? That's what people who accept total responsibility do. you got to hang the right shingle on the right action. Principle number four is direct all the consequences for your actions squarely at yourself. Go into it with the attitude that David came out of it. He came out of it with the attitude of, Lord, it's all about me. I'm the one who's done wrong. L lay all of this on me and my family, not these innocent people. Friends, a person who accepts total responsibility is willing to take step up to the plate. And if somebody needs to be beaned with the ball, he says to God, okay, God, bean me. This is my fault. Don't bean somebody else. If you need to bean somebody, you need to bean me. Fifth and finally is don't let other people get emotionally involved in your defense. You remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about taking up other people's offenses? We said that's when you and I, as people who aren't part of the problem, we're not part of the solution, but we jump in and we try to defend people, we try to take up their cause, we try to run interference for them. And remember I told you a couple of weeks ago, when you do that, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get wounded and you're going to get shot. Don't get in the middle of that. Don't take up other people's offenses. Well, this is the other side of the coin. Friends, that is when you or I are the person who's in it, who's suffering for our own wrongdoing, accepting full responsibility means that we don't allow other innocent people to step in and take up our offense. We don't let them get in. We say to them, hey, this is all my fault. I deserve everything I'm getting. Nobody's picking on me. Nobody's making a victim out of me. Nobody's mistreating me. I did this. Do you understand that? I'm getting what I deserve for what I did. It's my fault. Now, don't jump in here. Don't defend me. Don't take up my offense. Don't get involved in this. Just pray for me. You stay out of it because I'm not a victim. I'm getting what I deserve. You understand? Stay out of it. That's a person 
who's accepting total responsibility. And if you want to know whether a person really has accepted full responsibility for their actions, it's easy to find out. Just look and see how they react when somebody wants to come up to them and make them a victim and take up their offense. If they, that person lets a person make them a victim and take up their offense, you know you got somebody who hasn't owned their stuff yet. It's the person who will say, hey, you don't have a thing to do with this. This is all my problem. I'm in this mess because I put myself in this mess. And all you need to do is pray for me. You stay out of this. Nobody's making me a victim. I'm getting what I deserve. This is what it means to accept total responsibility. Now, friends, I got to tell you, when it comes to messing up, I don't know about you, but, but this is one of my spiritual gifts, messing up. It really is. I'm wonderful at this. I'm gifted at this. Honest I am. I've gotten myself into so many cow pies in the last 30 years of being a Christian. You would not believe it. And let me tell you something. The only reason I'm still standing here today as the pastor of McLean Bible Church is because of the mercy of God. I've done stuff that there's no, there's no logical reason I should still be here. Made stupid mistakes. I should have been thrown out of here years ago. But I'll tell you why I'm standing here. Because when the sledgehammer was up above me and I deserved it and all what I had done, you know, I mean, I deserved the sledgehammer. One thing I have learned how to do is use these five principles and activate the mercy of God. And what that does is God then usually will turn the sledgehammer into a jeweler's hammer. And if it drops at all, it won't be a mortal blow. I'm telling you, this works. If you're in a mess, you're not going to go through life without messing up. It's impossible. And if you find yourself in a mess, friends, what you really have to know, the secret, is how to activate the mercy of God when we do mess up. How do we activate the mercy of God? We accept total and full responsibility for what we've done. We don't play the victim. We, we don't uh, try to explain it all away. We, 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 we don't spare and coddle ourselves. We aim all of the consequences at ourselves and we don't let other people get involved and take up our offense because we're not a victim. When we come to God with that attitude, let me tell you what happens. God looks at us and goes, you know what? You do deserve the sledgehammer. Honest you do. In fact, you deserve the jackhammer. But... I'll go ahead and make it a jeweler's hammer because you've owned the responsibility for what you've done. This is the way God is. And smart people learn the way God is and then they adapt. I've got a son who plays high school baseball and he always complains about the umpire strike zone. Never likes the strike zone. Never where he wants it. And I said to him, John, you know, the whole secret of this thing is you learn the umpire strike zone. The umpire doesn't learn you and adjust his strike zone to you, son. You learn the umpire strike zone and you adjust to him. That's what smart ball players do. Friends, smart followers of Jesus Christ do the same thing. We don't expect God to adjust to us. We learn who God is and then we adjust to him. And what I've told you is the way God is and how you can activate the mercy of God in your life. Smart people say, well, it's not easy to live that way. It takes a lot of courage to live that way. It's a little uncomfortable to live that way, but hey, if that's the strike zone God has, I'll adjust to it so that I can have the mercy of God in my life. God help you do that. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for talking to us about real down-to-earth stuff, right where we live. Everyday stuff. Because every day we mess up. Every day we find ourselves doing and saying things that get us in trouble 
And what we need to know, Lord, more than anything else, is how to activate the mercy of God so that we turn those sledgehammers that we bring on ourselves and those jackhammers that we bring on ourselves into jeweler's hammers. Thanks for telling us how to do that. Thanks for telling us about what activates the mercy of God. And Lord, even though it takes courage to live this way, and it takes humility to live this way, help us to adjust our strike zone to yours, that we might learn how to bring the mercy of God to bear in our everyday life. Thanks for teaching us today, Lord. Change the way we live and react to situations, because we were here and learned about you today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.